For those of you who are keeping score, we changed the order of service a little bit. We're going to sing Arise, My Soul, Arise at the end of the service. Uh, we have been experimenting the last few weeks with uh, moving things around. And, uh, well, we're going to sing again at the end of the service. Thankful for our worship team and their service to us this morning. Then the other thing that you'll notice, if it's a little crowded in here, it's my fault. I'm ringing a little bit. Not because of my sparkling personality. It's my fault. I, I closed the fellowship hall. There were a few people scattered down there at 1028, and I said, well, let's just all go upstairs. So here they are, and it's crowded in here. It's my fault. So I forgot that 75% of the church arrives between 1029 and 1035. So that was my own fault, and I apologize. Uh, Gary Saul Morrison is a professor. He teaches at, the, at Northwestern University near Chicago, and uh, he, has, he teaches the most popular elective class on campus. Every time he teaches this class, hundreds of students pack into a hall to hear him lecture about Russian literature. Uh, Morrison has a vast and broad knowledge of Russian history, uh, and he, he actually has spent a fair amount of time, in addition to reading those great novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, he has a, um, uh, spent a vast amount of time reading and writing about the 20th century when Russia was dominated by Soviet communism and the atheism that upheld it. Several years ago, he wrote an article called Among the Disbelievers, Why Atheism Was Central to the Great Evils of the 20th Century. So he, he wrote that essay. He read the memoirs of several people who had been imprisoned in Russian gulags. He read their memoirs and then wrote about his observations. His observations matched another Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You'll recognize his name perhaps. Solzhenitsyn, when he would travel around the West, he argued that the only way to survive in a Russian prison camp is to have something outside of the camp itself to live for, something bigger, something more important, something even, here we say, eternal to live for. In other words, it was not the atheists, it was not the materialists who endured, it was men and women of faith. And Morrison says that, that even in the camps themselves, the atheists knew it was the religious believers who refused to do terrible things for their own self-interest. Now, here's a, a, a story that Morrison tells. This is a memoir written in 1967 by a woman who was a member of the Communist Party. She was denounced by someone and arrested and sent to the gulag. And during her interrogation, they encouraged her to denounce the person who had denounced her. He, he reported on you. You should report on him. That seems fair, right? And uh, she refused. And she looked at her interrogator and she said, that is between him and his conscience. And the interrogator sneered back at her. What are you, a gospel Christian or something? There's a lot in those two sentences of dialogue. That's between him and his conscience, she says. What are you, a gospel Christian? If you're an atheist, if you're a materialist, you believe that there is nothing beyond this world. There's nothing higher than what is immediately good in the world. And to appeal to something outside of this world is priest talk. It's, it's of no real significance. There's nothing like a conscience to which you can appeal. Only Christians, only gospel Christians talk that way. Christianity is a threat and it always has been a threat to totalitarianism. It was that way from the beginning uh, when uh, the first believers said Jesus is Lord and refused to say Caesar is Lord and it continues 
uh, today in our own country. We've had this conflict. So we have a conflict between your conscience and the authority of the state. Do Jehovah's Witnesses have to pledge allegiance to the flag when the pledge is recited in the schools? That was a court case. It was decided in 1947. Uh, I'm pleased that the Supreme Court ruled that they don't have to violate their conscience in that way. Uh, do Amish, did Amish have the right to educate their children the way they believe their faith tells them to educate their children? There are Amishmen who are arrested in Lancaster County and imprisoned in Lancaster County Prison for taking that stand. Uh, do doctors, must doctors perform or prescribe medication for euthanasia? Is that a requirement of them? Do pharmacists have to dispense the morning after pill? Must cake bakers bake cakes for same-sex weddings? Is there authority above the state in the minds and hearts of citizens that the state has to acknowledge? And uh, sometimes it takes us a while, but generally in our country we have gotten to the answer yes. That affirmative answer is rooted in convictions that match what the Bible says about the nature of human beings. We believe that when God made human beings, he planted in them a moral sense of right and wrong. The Apostle Paul said that the requirements of the law, of God's law, are written on our hearts. And in addition to that moral code, God has given us a conscience. We're talking these days about what the Bible says about your conscience. Your conscience is that internal witness that reminds you of what's right and wrong, reminds you of what you believe about right and wrong. You have these convictions about right and wrong. Some of them match God's own convictions uh, because he wrote them there. And some of them don't match God's own convictions because we're sinners. But your conscience tells you whether or not you are living in conformity to your own standards of right and wrong. We don't talk very much, Christians don't talk very much about the conscience, and we're, we're trying to fix that these days. God gave you your conscience to help you, to protect you, to warn you, to trouble you when something is wrong. Wise people are in the habit of listening to their consciences, and mature believers know how to love their brothers and sisters when their convictions disagree. That's actually a two-sentence summary of these whole weeks that we're going to be spending talking about conscience. Wise people listen to their conscience, and mature believers know how to love one another when our convictions disagree. Uh, we're going to, well, this is the third week that we have taken up this subject. Uh, we spent some time in Romans 2 talking about what your conscience is. Last week, we surveyed four passages that talk about um, uh, how sin breaks the human conscience. Your conscience can be uh, evil, it can be corrupted, it can be seared, it can be weak. Today, uh, we're going to spend time, uh, actually this week and next week, talking about how to get a clear conscience. That's the goal. The Apostle Paul wrote about the conscience more than anyone else in the New Testament. And if he were here this morning, he would plead with you to have a clear conscience. Now, how do you get a clear conscience? I want to suggest to you two ways. We're going to talk about one this week and one next week. Uh, Your conscience is made clear because your conscience can be cleansed and your conscience can be calibrated. It needs to be cleansed and calibrated. Uh, Today we're going to talk about a cleansed conscience, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about calibrating your conscience. That's my plan, and it's convenient that they all start with the letter C. So uh, my specific hope today for what... That was kind of funny. It's supposed to be. But anyway, my specific hope today is um, that I want to help those of you who have a particularly sensitive 
conscience. Uh, There are followers of Jesus, Kevin DeYoung thinks it's actually a majority of us, uh, followers of Jesus who live with this low-level hum of guilt in your life. This consistent sense that you're disappointing yourself, that you're disappointing God, that you've disappointed the church, your parents, your friends, that you don't measure up, and it leaves you with just this low-level sense of guilt, just discouraged most of the time. Actually, it might be worse than low-level discouragement. Your sensitive conscience might spend most of its time screaming at you about your failures. And it induces a panic, fear, despair. It cuts you off from other people. You don't get close to other people because you know that if they knew what a failure you are, they would leave you. A seared conscience is bad. An oversensitive conscience can be debilitating. Gary Nebecker and Norm Thiessen wrote an article several years ago called Consciences That Condemn When Moral Thermostats Go on the Blink. It's a good title. They list several signs of what they call a hypersensitive conscience. I wonder if these apply to any of you. Here they are. Uh, you have to ask forgiveness over and over for a sin you no longer commit. You ruminate about past mistakes and failures in your life. You seldom feel acceptable to or accepted by God. You get down on yourself for small errors or normal human failures. You have vague feelings of guilt, but you're not sure, really sure why. You avoid making decisions that you imagine may hurt others when there's no basis in fact that the decision is wrong and hurtful. The last one here. You struggle with unfounded feelings of inadequacy or incompetence. I want to help you today. Uh, I pray that I can help you today. I want to speak to all of us about having a cleansed conscience, but I hope in particular to help those with a sensitive conscience. And here's how I want to proceed. Um, First, this should not surprise you. First, we're going to talk about how God himself cleanses our conscience through Jesus Christ. We talk about this practically every week. Think with me again this morning about what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. The reason we're going to talk about it again is because there's no plan B when it comes to cleansing the conscience. This is God's plan A. It's for everyone. And the solution to oversensitive, hypersensitive, deeply sensitive consciences is to go deeper into the truth of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus. So we're going, to, we're, going to talk, we're going to visit two passages about that. And then I want to take you to a third passage that's going to help surface some of the reasons why, even though we believe what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus, we still struggle. We're going to find um, some help in a, in a passage in the New Testament. Now, first of all, I want to read a verse that Jeff already read to us just a minute ago, Hebrews 9.14. Did you hear it? It was in the middle of that passage that he read, that long passage. I'm so sorry, Jeff, that long passage that he read, Hebrews 9.14. How much more then, the author writes, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The author of Hebrews is writing there about the commands that God gave to the believers in the Old Testament. How are they to approach God with the blood of bulls and animals to cover, uh, bulls and other animals to cover their sins? But the blood of Jesus, his own son, has been shed to cleanse our consciences and make us whole. There's no other alternative. There's no other hope. 
This is where all of us, everyone, with a seared conscience, with a sensitive conscience, this is all where we go to the cross of Christ. Now let's talk about how a couple of prophets in the Old Testament did this. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. I want you to turn to the book of Micah. Micah is... Uh, well, it may be the name of one of your favorite members of the Friar Brown families, or it is also a text in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's a very small book towards the end, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah, chapter 7, is where I want to direct your attention. Micah 7 is where John Piper goes when he wants to talk to people about gutsy guilt. Uh, gutsy guilt is for people who know they are guilty but are also confident before God nonetheless. How is it possible? How is it possible that you could know you're guilty and yet have confidence before God? Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 7, Micah 7, 7. Up to this point in time, it has been bad news for the nation of Judah. They have failed God repeatedly and consistently and judgment is coming. Here, though, we come to Micah 7, 7. A text says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. Notice his confidence here, right? He's waiting. He's, he's waiting for the Lord. His confidence, God is going to hear him. Verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Notice Micah's condition, right? He doesn't hide it. He doesn't deny it at all. He says that he has fallen. He's in darkness. He has sinned against the Lord. He deserves the Lord's wrath. That's how he feels about himself. Does that accurately describe you? Yes, it does. How conscious of you are you of this? The truth of the matter is that what Micah says here describes all of us. The Bible condemns all of us human beings. We have all fallen. We have all sinned against him. We all naturally sit in darkness. Your seared conscience might tell you that you're not that bad. Your sensitive conscience may tell you that you're worse than everybody else. The truth of the matter is that no one here has room uh, for boasting. I saw a video clip uh, this week of an amazing play uh, by Phillies right fielder Bryce Harper. Did you see this? So the Phillies were playing Chicago in Chicago. The Cubs were up by one. The bases were loaded. And uh, the Cubs outfielder Albert Elmora Jr. got up to bat. And the pitch was delivered. He swung. It went right onto right field, practically into Bryce Harper's glove. He didn't, did not have to move at all. Bases were loaded, though, so on third base, Anthony Rizzo tagged third base and started to head home, and Bryce Harper threw the ball from right field to the catcher. 246 feet in the air, 96 miles an hour, 96 miles per hour, the ball went and landed in the catcher's glove. He, the ball beat Rizzo to home plate by eight feet. It's an astounding throw. Is there anybody here who could make that throw? I couldn't make that throw. It's well beyond my ability, and I'm guessing it's beyond the ability of anybody here. If you can make that throw when you're here this morning, you need to go talk to somebody, okay? Right? You shouldn't go to the ML Major League Baseball, right? 
Um, I'm not sure if Bryce Harper is worth $330 million yet, uh, but that was pretty impressive. You can't meet, I can't meet that standard of that throw. Now, how does your life measure up to God's standards? You're not the standard of righteousness. I'm not the standard of righteousness. Basic human decency, what normal people would do in normal circumstances, that's not the standard. God is the standard. And everyone falls short of it. You have reasons... You have reasons, friend, to be discouraged. It's good that your conscience convicts you because you're guilty. You should feel shame. Be thankful for a conscience that works. Look where you are. You're just like the prophet, in the dark, under the sentence of God's wrath, fallen. Your conscience may be hypersensitive, but it's not lying to you about your basic condition. Every single person here this morning is broken. The prophet, though, in this passage, even he's got some moxie. Surprising. He talks back. Verse 8, don't gloat over me. Don't gloat over me. Without denying his condition, he, he talks back because he has hope. Where's the source of his hope? It's the Lord. The Lord will be my light. He will take up my case. He will uphold my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Do you ever talk back to your conscience? Some of you should. When it condemns and condemns and condemns and condemns, some of you need to learn to talk back to your conscience. Not because of who you are, not because it's it's lying to you. You need to talk back to your conscience because of what God has said he would do. He's the one who intervenes. He upholds the prophet. He defends the prophet. He's going to take up his case. It's the Lord's idea. It's his initiative. It's from him. It's for him. It's to him. Not because of your performance, but because of who God is and what he's going to do. So I want you to see two things in this passage. The prophet is very honest about his condition, and he's very confident that the Lord is going to rescue him. People with seared consciences, they struggle with the honesty part. I'm not that bad. People with sensitive consciences suffer with the confidence part. The Lord will plead my cause. Now, both of these elements are present in another passage that's in the prophets. I think I've taken you to this place before, but I want you to turn to the right in your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah should be about 15 pages or so, unless you have a massive study Bible, then it's maybe 30. But about 15 pages to the right of Micah is Zechariah chapter 3. And that's where I want to turn your attention. Zechariah is the prophet who has visions, and he, he sees spiritual truth in images. And here's his vision about Joshua the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3. Um, so the high priest is supposed to be the holiest man in the entire nation. The hope of all the Israelites is placed on the high priest. He's going to intercede with God for us. He's going to be the ritually, the most pure person in the nation. But there's, there's a problem. There's a huge problem. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Oh. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Zechariah the prophet gets in on this here, I said, Put a clean turban on his head too. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Notice Joshua's condition. So Micah the prophet was in the darkness. Joshua the prophet, uh, Joshua the priest here is filthy. Actually, there's two images for him. He was a burning stick snatched from the fire and he's dressed in filthy clothes. The Hebrew text uh, here refers to offal, not awful, but offal. Offal is awful, but offal is a term that refers to food that is moving through your digestive system. Uh, it is actually the undigested contents of your uh, digestive system. It's in an animal's colon. It's ready to be excreted. That's offal. And Joshua is covered in offal here standing before God. He is about as ritually unclean as he possibly could be with this uh, excrement on him. What a way to depict Joshua, right? And the nation. This is their spiritual condition. This is not just grass stain. This is not a little dust that's blown into the windows. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's damnably filthy. And to make matters worse, there's Satan standing by him, accusing him. He's the accuser, and he's accusing Joshua. Now, we have to distinguish the conscience from two things. The Holy Spirit may convict you of sin, but the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as your conscience. Satan may accuse you, but Satan and your conscience are not the same thing either. Now, who in this passage takes the initiative? Who acts? Joshua actually doesn't do anything himself. God does. He doesn't deny that Joshua is a mess. Nobody, know, uh, nobody is pretending that Joshua is clean. But he silences Satan and he clothes Joshua. And this clothing is directly related to your forgiveness. Verse um, uh, 4 in the middle, he says, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. This is such an important image in the Bible. Uh, do you remember in the early chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned? The text says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And what did God do? God came. Well, they tried. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. God came. He slaughtered an animal. And with the skin of that animal, he covered their nakedness and their shame. Do you remember what happened to the prodigal son when he came home? Prodigal son came home in Luke 15 and his father put new sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger and the best robe in the house around his body. The Gospels tell us when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he was stripped naked and hung in shame. Joshua's shame is depicted here by filthy clothes. When the Lord Jesus took our sins on the cross, our shame became his shame and he died for us. And when we turn to him by faith, when we trust in him, God clothes us with his perfect righteousness. It's how God sees us. It's his work. He initiated the work. He completed the work. It's what he has done for us. 
I had a theology professor. He used to like to say to us, to shock us good Protestants, he used to say to us, you're all saved by works. Not your own works, but Jesus' work. His death, his resurrection, and we stand before God in Jesus' radiant garment. This is God's answer to a broken conscience, cleansing it by the blood of Jesus. Just like we read in Hebrews 9. There's no plan B. And the, pi- the Bible calls you to enter into Micah's confidence, to, to, to stand up and talk back with Micah's confidence and, and Zechariah's enthusiasm. I, I pointed out verse 5 that Zechariah gets involved in the action. He's watching this. He's watching this scene unfold and he gets so excited with the new clothes that Zechariah has that he says, keep going. Put a turban on him too. Don't stop. And God did it. Here's an invitation, brothers and sisters, to push back against your sensitive conscience, not because of who you are and what you have done, but because of God's work. Push back. Brothers and sisters, let's remind each other to push back. I will arise. I will see the light because the Lord will shine his light on me. Now, I want to take you to one very important passage. It's a passage that helps us uncover some of the causes of a sensitive conscience. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention next. So we've spent some time talking about a couple of Old Testament passages that remind us that though we are guilty and damnably so, God takes the initiative to cleanse, to forgive, to purify. And now I want to read this passage for some help in understanding why, if we believe that message about the Lord Jesus, why do we still struggle with sensitive consciences? Why are some of us in particular so troubled in a minute, I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to talk about the context a little bit, and I'm going to find a couple suggestions in the passage about why we struggle with sensitive consciences. There are two other reasons, though, that we do that I want to give you before we get to 1 Corinthians 4. So you're there, but um, just listen for a moment. Why do people have, in particular, sensitive consciences or over-sensitive consciences? Well, um, a couple of reasons. First, I think there is your temperament, your temperament. Some of you were born this way, with just a more sensitive conscience. You know, in the world, there are introverts and there are extroverts. There's academics, there's athletes. Um, There are people who are just prone by temperament to more serious and more severe introspection. It's how God made you. And because of that temperament that you have, you've got to lean in a little bit more to Micah 7 and to Zechariah 3 and to Hebrews 9 and passages like that. It's just the way you are. It's your temperament. So to fight a little bit more to believe these things and work them out in your life. Secondly, a sensitive conscience can sometimes be the consequences of the sin of others. So your temperament and sometimes a sensitive conscience can come from the sin of others. I'm thinking, frankly, about those who have been abused. Do you remember the story of Tamar in the Bible? There's a couple different Tamars in the Bible. The one I'm thinking of was David's daughter, King David. Her story is in 2 Samuel 13. King David's daughter, uh, King David had a beautiful daughter. Her name was Tamar. Uh, One day, her wicked brother, his name was Amnon, lured her into his bedroom, bedroom and he assaulted her. 
She said to him, while, while he was approaching her, she, she said to him, don't do this wicked thing. Where can I get rid of my disgrace? He assaulted her. He threw her out. She, she disappears from the biblical story. As far as we know, she never recovered from this. It's a reminder about the, the sort of shame that, that the polluting effect of sin, of the sin of others, can have on us. Not what you have done, but what has been done to you. And you are certain that those stains can never be removed. And, and the shame, that shame makes your conscience as sensitive as sunburnt skin. Any little touch stings. I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody who has experienced grievous assault who does not walk around with this sense of shame, thinking that, that they are polluted, that they are defiled, that there's something wrong with them. The crime was committed against them. They, they are not guilty of the crime, but still they bear this, this grievous shame. And, and a sensitive conscience can be a sign of that. We should devote more time to this in the future, but can I remind you that Christ's work on the cross cleanses us from our sins and from the pollution that other people have done against us. It removes all stains. He washes us. He cleanses us. He, he, he purifies us in his great sovereign plan. The Lord Jesus will present us to himself uh, uh, a pure and clean, sparklingly white. Ephesians 5 uses this imagery of our raiments, our clothes. Our hope is still in the cross for this sort of shame. So our sensitive conscience can come from a temperament. and our sensitive conscience can come from the effects of the sins of others. Let's read 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to find a couple other um, sources of an oversensitive conscience. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So the Corinthian church had a problem. They had had traveling teachers and preachers come through, and their problem was that they were comparing their spiritual leaders. Uh, the church members had favorites, and they were arguing over the, between themselves, which pastor is the best pastor? Which, which preacher is the best preacher? Which leader is the best leader? And Paul, he, he is done with that. He's not going to have anything to do with that. He said in verse 1, look, you just ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those as stewards of the mysteries of God. Besides, he says, the judgments that you're rendering about me are insignificant in comparison to what God says about him. It doesn't matter very much, he says to me, what you say. The only person whose voice really matters is God himself. He doesn't even judge himself, he says in verse 3. He's not saying that he doesn't uh, uh, do uh, self-examination, that he doesn't engage in self-examination. He's saying that his own evaluation is not the most important judgment. 
So when we were in Micah and we were in Zechariah, I pointed out God is the one who does the cleansing work. It's his idea. He starts it. He completes it. And now Paul is saying that God's own evaluation is more important than even his own evaluation. Is that how you feel about the judgments of yourself? Have you come to a point where you say, God's word is more important than my own evaluation of myself? It reminds me of 1 John 3.19. I think I wrote those verses down. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. There's a call in the Bible to trust God's word and his evaluation of you more than you trust your own evaluation of yourself. This is what the prophets mean. I think part of the pushing back that the prophets encourage talking back. He also says in verse 4, my conscience is clear, he says. I don't think that means that he's perfect. I don't think he's saying that he's perfect either. In Romans chapter 7, he's very honest about his own struggle, that he, his, his sin. He does the things he doesn't want to do. He does the things he doesn't want to do. In um, 2 Timothy, he says that he is the chief sinner, he's the worst of sinners. So how is his conscience clean? His conscience is clean is because Jesus is the Savior in whom he's trusting, and he follows Jesus' instructions in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confessing is a normal part of Christian living. You're not unusual in having something to confess. God is faithful and just to his own promises to cleanse us from unrighteousness. I think that's why Paul says he has a clear conscience. Friday morning, I had to drop my daughter off at school very early. She was getting on a plane ride and go to uh, Atlanta. Uh, while we were sitting in the school parking lot, she turned to me and she said, I forgot something. So one of the other kids, we were all waiting for the group to assemble before we left, and one of the other uh, students was there with his uh, parents, and I pulled over to right next to them in the car, and I said something that I'm sure was just clever. It was, it was clever and it was slightly cynical and a little sarcastic and totally insulted my daughter. So we drove home quick, got what we were supposed to do, come back, and uh, I dropped her off. And as I was leaving the school after I dropped her off, I thought, that, that is not at all the way I want to speak about my child. That's not all I want to say about. This is, um, this is not what I want to say about my daughter. It's, it's sorry. This is not how I want people to think about my daughter. It's not how I want other people to treat my daughter. So, huh, there she goes. She's gone. Um, so what do you do in that situation? Well, I, I called her, I talked to her, I apologized for it. And then what do you do? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. My conscience is clear, Paul says, because this is the answer and this is what God has done. So... In this, in this passage here, Paul is giving more authority to God's judgment 
than he does to the judgment of anyone else, including his own conscience. The only person who has more authority over your conscience than you is God himself. And when God speaks about your conscience and about your guilt and about your shame, credit him with authority, more authority than you credit yourself. So we're talking about oversensitive consciences. Where do oversensitive consciences come from? They come sometimes from your temperament. Sometimes they come from the, the backwash of the sins of others. Notice here third, an oversensitive conscience can be fueled by unrealistic standards. Unrealistic standards. In the book of Corinthians, the Corinthians were comparing Paul and Peter to this great view they had of super apostles. And Paul comes and they say, well, Paul's not very impressive looking. That's in 1 Corinthians a little later. Paul doesn't speak very well. Paul doesn't ask us to give us enough money. If Paul demanded more money, then we would listen to him. (laughs) That's unusual. Um, But these are the standards that they have. You don't meet these standards, Paul, so we're judging you. And some of you have unrealistic standards for yourself that are so high that no one could possibly meet them. You pick them up from somewhere. These standards, you don't meet the standards, no one could meet the standards, but you pick these standards up for your life somewhere. May, some of you picked them up when you were a child. Your home was harsh, you were shamed, or you were browbeaten, or there was inconsistency in your house about what was expected. You never could please your parents, and so you think you never can please God. Or maybe there were unrealistic expectations. You have to be academically solid and athletically exceptional and you have to get a job and you have to work harder than anybody else and you have to be at the top of everything. You have to be first place in every activity and every endeavor. And some of you absorbed those standards and you have them and your performance is what you were taught. Your performance is what is keeping this family together and keeping your mother happy. So you have to perform. Maybe you picked up your unrealistic standards from television or social media. Sometimes churches can give you unrealistic standards. You know, you need to be reading the Bible for an hour every day, and you need to have uh, family devotions for an hour every day, and you need to work really hard at your job, and you need to have your neighbors over for evangelistic Bible studies, and you need to be serving at the church, and you need to be giving to missionaries, and you need to have your budget absolutely perfect. You need to be saving 30% of your income for retirement, and all these things that God tells you to do, keep doing them. Right? Over and over and over again, these standards. Unrealistic standards that no one can meet. Now, there's one final source of an oversensitive conscience that I want to find. It's in this passage. I want to show you uh, comparison. Comparison. Kevin DeYoung says that comparison is the bane, in particular, of mothers. Mothers who compare themselves with other mothers. You know it's true, don't you, that uh, every other mother's house is cleaner than your house is? Their children are also better behaved and more advanced and better dressed than your kids, and everything within reach of them is organic. And no other children watch television or play with the computer as much as your children do. And, and their family devotions last three hours, and most kids, not yours, of course not yours, most kids have probably memorized the book of Ephesians in Greek because that's the kind of mother they are, and you're not that kind of mother, right? Get off Facebook. Get off Instagram. And stop comparing yourself with other people. 
One, all those comparisons, they're not true. It's not true that their life is as perfect as they depict on Instagram and Facebook and you try to depict too. And two, no one is ever going to win the comparison game. No one's going to win that game. Everyone loses that game because the, the winners, the people who are better than you, they lose because you resent them and the losers, well, you're just losers. No one wins that game. Celebrate the things that your friends do well. Learn from them, but do the best you can with the resources that God has given you. And when you fail, as you inevitably will, there's a solution for that. It's the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your sensitive conscience coming because you're comparing yourself with someone else? Your conscience is evil and it's polluted and it's warped. Sometimes it's warped by your temperament. Sometimes it's warped by the sins of others. Sometimes by unrealistic standards. Sometimes it's warped by the comparison game. We start to set it right by remembering and relying what Christ has done for us. I was going to end in another way, but we're going to finish our time this morning by singing a song that Charles Wesley wrote. It's a song that you sing to yourself to push back. Arise, my soul, arise. Have done with your fears because the bleeding sacrifice appears for you and God cannot deny his own son who's died for us. I'm going to pray and then our musicians are going to come and we're going to sing that song. Lord, I come before you this morning and I pray that you by your grace would teach us to have some moxie in the face of our condemning consciences. Oh Lord, I pray for the dear men and women in this room who are just beset by this low-level guilt, condemnation that isolates them, causes them to be afraid. Lord, I pray that you would remind us this morning, even as we sing, of the great mercy that we have through you. You are the one who will shine the light into our darkness. You are the one who gives us shining new clothes in the face of the clothes that we have soiled. You do that. You're the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Oh, we thank you. That, that, that promise in your word is true. Father, would you... Set our hearts at rest because you are greater than our hearts. Your word is more trustworthy than our own evaluation of ourselves. Help us, Lord, we pray, to walk in the joy of forgiveness that is rich and free. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. I invite you all to stand as we sing our final song together this morning. Thank you.